Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray and with me as usual is co-host and marine scientist Dr. Robert Spies. Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, we're really fortunate. Uh, we've got a bit of an unusual program because we, uh, when we're talking in the, about the marine environment, it's usually about whales or dolphins or fish or something else and do something a little bit different tonight. We're going to be talking about some of the basic chemical and physical processes in the ocean, particularly the cycling of oxygen, uh, nitrogen, uh, carbon, and some of the trace elements uh, are all related to uh, vital processes in the ocean that sustain the, uh, the marine food webs. So we're very pleased to have uh, Dr. Ken Johnson. He's from the, he's a senior scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in Moss Landing, California, and he heads up the chemical sensor group there. And they have developed some really interesting ways of measuring chemical chemistry in the ocean and uh, are involved in some really large international programs. So uh, really looking forward to this uh, uh, somewhat unusual, but I think you're gonna, uh, our listeners are going to find it very interesting. So, uh, Ken, we usually start our programs by asking people how they got involved in science, um, particularly it's useful for our, some of our younger viewers that have maybe thinking about a career in science and how you kind of progress to where you are uh, uh, as, this, as a, a full-time marine researcher. Well, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, how did I get here is an interesting story. I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and uh, family members had commercial fishing boats and I went to sea as a salmon fisherman at age 13 and fished salmon commercially. Fortunately, salmon come in the summer and um, fished all through high school and college 10 years, uh, Fraser River salmon. Um, and I learned two things. I learned to love the ocean. Also learned that I wasn't going to be a very good salmon fisherman. That's kind of an art. I mean, I, I really respect people that, you know, can make a living catching fish commercially because it is, they don't just fall on the boat. You really have to understand the ocean. You have to, um, you know, really have the DNA that helps you find the fish. And um, I love to go out there and look at the ocean and think about the ocean I wouldn't have been that good at catching fish if that had gone down that road. So, I, you know, hey, what can you do else? You become a marine scientist and um, went to school at the University of Washington undergrad in Oregon State as a, a graduate student. And um, I hate to say I never thought I'd live in California, having grown up in the Northwest, but I've been here for 40 years. So a fellow Oregon State alumnus. Yeah, go Beavers. Yep. Tell us a little bit about the, the kind of things that uh, you've developed. I know that you've done a lot of development of chemical methodology and instrumentation in the oceans. And um, you know, we, we do need those really good instruments and uh, particularly have them deployed in the right parts of the ocean to mm -hmm. understand what's going, out, uh, what's going on in terms of the cycling of all these important uh, elements and components of the ecosystem. Sure. Well, um, you know, the, the background, the history is that if you wanted to make a measurement in the ocean, you had to go out on a ship, 
put your bucket in the water, your sampler, and bring the water up on board the ship and make your measurement. That's how I got started. And, you know, it's okay, but you only make measurements if the ship is there, right? And believe, you know, as much as I love the ocean, you know, 30 days, 40 days on a ship is kind of a long time and you'd like to get back to your family and you go back and nobody's measuring anything there. We don't know what's going on in the ocean before you get there, before, before after you leave, you just have this little snapshot. And um, that sort of motivated me to get into the field of designing chemical sensors that you can put on robots and our thing now is essentially putting robots with sensors all around the global ocean from the Antarctic, you know, all the way up to Greenland. And um, they stay there and go up and down. The, the robots go uh, vertically through the upper two kilometers, 2,000 meters of the ocean over a mile. Uh, they make this vertical excursion once every 10 days and get to the surface and phone home and send the data. And we track what I would call the basic metabolism of the ocean, right? So um, if you're not feeling well and you go to the hospital, whatever, they don't immediately give you a CAT scan or an MRI. They take your vital signs, right? The blood pressure, your... your um, temperature, your uh, pulse, um, and kind of, you know, assess the health of the of the patient. And this is really what we're trying to do for the world ocean, especially, you know, we, we tend to observe right next to the coast, but you get out 500 miles, there's, you know, two thirds of the Earth's surface, ships get their maybe once every 10 years, once every 15 in many places, Southern Ocean, Southern Hemisphere in particular. So our thing is is building robots with, with sensors that tell us how fast the plankton are growing, um, how much carbon dioxide they're taking up, uh, the status of the fertilizer that, that supports the plankton community. So really the, the bottom of the food chain, but if the bottom of the food chain isn't healthy, you know, the salmon aren't going to be healthy. The rest of the system is, is not working. So remote, remotely observing fundamental metabolism of the ocean. Yeah, you, you hit on something as soon as you were talking about, you know, the old way of going out on a boat and sampling. You pretty quickly realize when you get out in the ocean how big it is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how little of it anyone can actually see, much less sample. So... This is really kind of the only way to get a representative sampling. Yeah. It seems to me that you must be, uh, in some ways, this is pioneering work, right? There can't have been yeah. very much of this kind of data collected in the open, distant oceans. This, you know, 15 years ago, really none of this existed. It just started. Um, so we didn't have chemical sensors 15 years ago. We really didn't have a communication system that would allow us to talk to robots out in the ocean. If you wanted to get the data, you had to go get the robot, um, and, which is awkward. Um, and super expensive. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the microelectronics, optoelectronics, communications, all of those revolutions have made it possible to do things that 20 years ago, 15 years ago, just a dream. I've heard somebody describe the uh, way that we used to look at the ocean uh, kind of analogous to taking a helicopter from San Francisco to uh, 
New York and then dropping a bucket every three or 400 miles and looking at what was in the bucket to kind of get an idea of what the country was like. And, uh, <laughs> the sampling was really kind of biased because hard enough to get out there. So no one wanted to go in the winter, right? If you, I mean, yeah. what, you get offshore in the winter and you spend most of your time just batting down. So oceanographic research ships aren't particularly big. It's not like a giant, and even the big tankers, right? They spend an awful lot of time just batting to down. So if you're going to go, you go in the summer and, you know, kind of, if you go sample Monterey, if I sample Mendocino only in the summer, I probably don't get a very representative view of what life is like you know, dropping my helicopter sample every 300, you know, miles, but only in summer. I have no idea that, you know, there's winter and snow and, you know, Denver is very hot in the summer, but it's pretty dang cold in the, in the winter. You know, one of my happiest days was uh, when I was in graduate school and um, I was signed up to go to the Antarctic in our summer, which was their winter on the uh, USS Altanen. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was a little disappointed at the time, but I'm uh, actually grateful. <laughs> the Southern Ocean in the winter <laughs> is a brutal place. <laughs> that got canceled? Yeah, yeah it got canceled. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've been down and believe me, I've not been in the winter and I don't know anybody that wants to go in the winter. But, yeah. but so this, this, you mentioned a couple of big international programs. One, we have a program started SOCOM, Southern Ocean Carbon and Climate Observations and Modeling. We're putting 200, we have put 200 of these robots around Antarctica. Um, Southern Ocean takes up a huge amount of heat. Uh, so uh, we think of global warming as warming the surface of the earth, but, but of the extra heat that's come into the world, 90 some percent of it, 93% is in the ocean. And of the heat that the ocean has absorbed, you know, about 80% of it has been absorbed by the ocean around Antarctica. Wow. And, with, and that just relates to the fact that the ocean mixes extremely deeply down there. The wind goes around the world and um, there's nothing in the way to stop it as it circles around Antarctica. So it's super important. So, uh, you know, we have robots down there. I've been down there in the summer, and believe me, it is not very pleasant. Uh, between the storms, it's okay, but there's a storm every three or four days. Um, you know, <laughs> just just not conducive to doing great great work. So the robots are happy; they don't care if it's if it's um, you know blowing fifty knots, and they don't mind working on Christmas or Thanksgiving or <laughs> you know their birthday. They just do their thing. Uh, there's a real difference between what's going on above the water surface and below, right? The the very same conditions that make it so miserable for terrestrial creatures like us uh, contribute to an incredibly productive marine ecosystem. Yeah, no, super. I mean, you've seen the pictures of the whales and the penguins and so on, but, but a large part of the Southern Ocean, I mean, it's really kind of interesting that... Um, the background is that in large parts of the ocean, you know, that the plant's productivity is limited not by water, not by sunlight, it's limited by fertilizer. And in the Southern Ocean, it turns out that there is a huge fertilizer limitation. And there are a couple of key nutrients that make the ocean, make the plants work. One is nitrogen. You want to make your lawn turn green, you put nitrogen on. But in the Southern Ocean, it's iron. Um, the continent, Antarctica is covered with ice, so there's really no dust 
carries a lot of iron. There are not much in the way of continents other than Antarctica. And so that part of the ocean really is limited by iron in the plants. So there are events that, that you know, dust events, uh, the fires in Australia of a few years ago, you know, we saw the pictures around Sydney and so on of these massive fires. They do carry dust out to the ocean and cause the plants to bloom um, and become even more productive, right? Um, but, but there are um, interesting processes that supply fertilizer to the ocean, make it turn green in patches, one place, not in another place. Uh, as the earth warms, it's possible, you know, that maybe the Southern Ocean, there'll be more dust going down there, we get drier, so on, although, anyway. <laughs> Some people have actually suggested that uh, we could fertilize the, uh, the Southern Ocean with iron, and they did that big experiment, was that back in the 90s? Uh, I was on that John ship. Martin, John Martin John, was yeah. involved. Yeah, know? John Moss Landing Marine Labs. So I first came to Moss Landing as a professor at Moss Landing Marine Labs, working with with John Martin. Um, John, so John, famous for having the statement, "Give me a tanker of iron, and I will give you an ice age." Uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, the the theory is that. Uh, the plants in the Southern Ocean are limited by iron does, and doesn't take much. Iron is a, what we call a micronutrient. You, just a little bit of iron in a plant can suck up huge amounts of carbon dioxide to make more plant. Um, and so one tanker load of iron would stimulate enough plant growth uh, to take up an enormous amount of CO2 carbon dioxide, that CO2 is a gas. So it would then be replaced by CO2 from the atmosphere, lowering the greenhouse effect. And um, we know that in ice ages, there's much less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. John's theory, still kind of a viable theory, is that there are geological processes that change the flow of dust to the ocean. You fertilize the plants in the Southern Ocean. They grow like crazy. They take up CO2 out of the water, which is replaced by CO2 from the air that cools the planet. And it actually turns out that a, a colder planet actually is drier. Cold air holds less water vapor. We know here in California, we get the grapevine, grapefruit express, which is a storm from Hawaii is much wetter than a storm from the Gulf of Alaska, right? Um, and so as the earth gets colder, there's less um, moisture in the air. And we know from the geological record, there were actually more deserts um, during an ice age. So the feedback would be earth gets a little colder, a little bit more desert, a little bit more dust, blows out to the ocean. The plants grow a lot more because of that little bit of dust. They take up CO2 out of the atmosphere, and make the earth colder again. And it's a cycle that- Kind of um, reinforcing cycle. Yeah. yeah just keeps going. So instrumenting the Southern Ocean with our robots uh, really are trying and uh, trying to understand partly this link to um, to climate. Uh, an Australian group used the data from our robots. So the, the beauty of this system is that uh, the data comes from the robot, goes on to our computer servers here. Anyone in the world can access the data. So if you went to socom.princeton.edu, as an example, um, uh, uh, that the, the program is headquartered at Princeton, but the data gets served actually off of computers here at Mabari. Um, you would you could access that data. Scientists in Australia did that, uh, looked at the linkage 
between the dust and the smoke from all the fires in Australia and, and we're able to show from the robots and from satellites that the ocean got much more productive following um, the big uh, bushfires in Australia, which is one more kind of bit of evidence that John Martin, when he he made his statement about a tanker load of iron and, and ice ages, he was onto something. Still, still uh, the linkage is pretty strong. Um, uh, we believe that is one possible mechanism that, that drives the Earth in and out of ice ages. Yeah, I've seen some speculation about this is one of the geoengineering solutions to climate change, right? And and it's really not a solution to climate change. It's just a, a different way of changing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, there's a lot of interest in that today. It's kind of a, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, at some point, if the earth does get warmer due to increasing carbon dioxide in that linkage, we know that CO2 really is a very strong control on, on earth climate. Um, and we're driving CO2 up, uh, um, you know, remarkably in the atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's over four east. Uh, when I was a graduate student, it was sort of 340 parts per million. Now it's over 400 you know, in, in my lifetime. Um, and uh, it's just going up. At some point, there is a lot of concern that we'll have to get CO2 out of the atmosphere and fertilizing the ocean is one way, maybe. And we know it does. So we did the experiment. We went down in a ship. We spread iron around. Uh, we literally turned this blue water just dark green from <laughs> so much plankton growing in it. Uh, you could see it from a satellite. You know, would show, now, show. how did you how did you spread the iron? I mean, the big problem in my mind is you have this vast surface area to try to disperse, because mm -hmm. as you say, it's a micronutrient, so you only yeah. need this tiny little dose in any yeah. given area. How do you spread it out? So you drop a drifting float with a radio transmitter and whatever you want to fertilize and. You have a, you know, so you get the radio signal, the float, a GPS signal, and you just set up a little grid and, and drive the ship back and forth like a tractor fertilizing a farmer, a farm's field. Only in the, in the Southern Ocean, we were fertilizing patches that were about 15, about 10 miles by 10 miles on a side. So in a ship that only goes 10 miles an hour, that's one hour down and one hour back. And, you know, it takes a day and a half to for, uh, driving back and forth like a tractor. Uh, the, the swaths are, are uh, were a little less than, than a, a kilometer, about a half a mile apart. And the ocean mixes, so it kind of spreads the iron around and you end up with a 10 mile by 10 mile patch of ocean that has iron in it and uh the southern ocean has lots of nitrogen in it the plants can't use it because they don't have the iron they need iron poor blood um and add the iron and they just go crazy they grow but crazy is not the right word they're very happy i guess yeah like, <laughs> like don't we have uh don't we have iron limited areas uh bob take your hand off your microphone yeah, yeah. sorry uh don't we have <laughs> Iron limited areas uh, like in the uh, uh, central Gulf of Alaska and places like that that, that uh, would respond similarly, but maybe they just, they're not as a strong response as we could actually get in the southern oceans. There have been, so, you know, the 
kind of a interesting technology in the ocean. It, it, to, we don't really think of doing an experiment with a chunk of the ocean, but these iron fertilization experiments, you can go out and manipulate a patch of ocean. Two have been done in the Gulf of Alaska and both turned the ocean up there very green. So the Gulf of Alaska is another place where there's lots of nitrogen fertilizer in the water and um, for a variety of reasons, again, get some iron, but but not enough for the plankton to use all of the nitrogen. There have been examples, um, volcanic eruptions in Kamchatka in Russia, for example, a few years ago, big volcanic ash uh, plume comes out, falls in the ocean and the plants go crazy. Um, again, they're very happy, <laughs> they grow. Um, and uh, that's been seen, so uh, Canadian group couple of different times have gone up and fertilized the ocean in, in the Gulf of Alaska. So, um, you know, kind of due west and a little, just a little bit north of, if you start in Vancouver, the Straits of Juan de Fuca and go off, you know, close to a thousand miles, um, 750 miles, something like that, and drive your ship back and forth like a tractor. Uh, the amount of iron that you put in the water is really pretty moderate. Uh, when we've done this in this 10 by 10, you know, mile patch, we have put about a thousand kilograms of iron, you know, so uh, a ton of metric ton of iron into the water. And that makes a patch enough to see from space. Uh, you can take the chlorophyll to change the chlorophyll concentrations by over an order of magnitude that was done in the, in the Gulf of Alaska. And it's probably true to some extent everywhere in the ocean. The only, everywhere in the ocean is somewhat iron limited along the edges of the ocean. So continental crust, uh, uh, Earth's crust is about four or 5% iron. So where we live, um, the ocean is relatively iron replete just because of the dust and the sediment that comes from rivers and, and so on. But um, late in the summer, especially down here, uh, the coastal ocean even is iron limited. So we have upwelling that brings deep water along the coast to the surface. Uh, and in many cases, that sediment, it brings up some iron with it as well, but that doesn't always happen. And so uh, uh, couple of different research groups at UC Santa Cruz, um, other places uh, down at Scripps o Institution of Oceanography have shown that coastal California at times is, is strongly iron limited as well. Hmm. We, have the, we have the nitrogen fertilizer, we have the phosphorus, we don't have iron. Even when that's upwelling that's sometimes yeah. deficient. Huh? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, it must be tempting for the, uh, for instance, the Canadian government to think about doing some of these iron enrichment experiments because the the salmon stocks in British Columbia have been uh, over the last 30 or 40 years have really uh, gone downhill and uh, must be tempting to think about well maybe we could uh, make could bring the <laughs> salmon back a little bit. You know, I wish I wish we knew more about salmon. So, right, but my background is a salmon fisherman. As much as anything that that got me into the business. Uh, have these big cycles of salmon. When I fished, um, the Fraser River salmon were on sort of a low uh, 2020, that absolute record run of fish on the Fraser, And then it's been kind of low since then. And we 
often tend to blame that on what they would call ocean conditions, but that's, you know, they don't know what an ocean condition is because <laughs> we don't have data. Nobody's out there all the time sampling. It, it's typically just a measurement of a temperature. If the water is colder, maybe it's more productive. But, you know, that's, that is our metric for most ocean conditions. Uh, so what exact, what parameters are you actually sampling and monitoring out there? Um, it's not, so here's 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 the background so you have to have a sensor so the robots we put out stay out for six years basically and no one touches it so you can't recalibrate the sensor whatever it's got to be good for six years more or less uh and so the things that we can measure um nitrate so nitrate nitrogen is fundamental fertilizer for much of the ocean if if you go to Hawaii, the water is clear because there are not many plankton in the water and there are not many plankton, not because there's no water, it's full of water, water is full of water, plenty of sunlight at Hawaii. There's no fertilizer, there's no nitrogen. So if I go to Hawaii on a ship and sample nitrogen, you know, the measurements are down below the detection limit. And what makes a place like Hawaii, the ocean around Hawaii work are events that uplift that iron into the into the sunlit zone where the the plants can grow uh, a little bit of nitrogen comes up the the phytoplankton the little plankton of the ocean take that iron that nitrogen up and grow uh, some little zooplankton then comes along and eats them excretes and excretes a fecal pellet poops the plankton in that pellet falls down deep into the ocean four kilometers and removes the nitrogen for you know 500 years um, from the <laughs> surface. So much of the ocean nitrogen limited. So okay, so we can measure nitrogen. The flow of fertilizer to the upper ocean is what kind of regulates the plant growth. We can measure oxygen. So when a plant photosynthesizes, takes up CO2, makes the organic carbon of the plant, it releases oxygen. Uh, you know, much of the oxygen in the atmosphere comes from plants growing in the ocean. Uh, so we measure oxygen, which is a tracer that tells us how fast the plants are growing. Uh, we can measure pH uh, from the floats. Uh, and so uh, pH with, uh, with some thermodynamic um, manipulations, we can then uh, uh, understand how much carbon dioxide is in the water. So carbon dioxide is a is an acid when it reacts with water, it affects the protons, which is what a pH sensor is measuring the amount of protons in the water. So I can, I can measure the flow of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into the ocean. When a, when a plant or an animal respires and, and emits carbon dioxide um, in terms of metabolism, I can measure how fast the plants of the ocean are respiring. So I can measure how fast they're they're producing oxygen. I can measure how fast they're respiring, releasing CO2. I can measure uh, chlorophyll. So the fundamental, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, chemical that enables plants to photosynthesize is the chlorophyll pigment uh, in the plants. That's what absorbs the light from the sun. Uh, there are sensors that allow us to measure the amount of chlorophyll in the water, which tells us, um, in some sense, how many plants are in the water. It's a little more complicated than that because different phytoplankton have different amounts of chlorophyll and it 
um, chlorophyll is sensed by the sensor, but it's still a reasonably good sensor. And I have a what's called an optical backscatter sensor, which tells me how many particles there are in the water. Uh, very similar to driving in a snowstorm. You put your lights on bright. If there's a lot of snow, all the light is reflected back and you can't see very far forward. Um, an optical backscatter sensor in a float does the same thing, shines light out in the water. If there are particles in the water, that light's reflected back. And I can tell you how many particles are in the water. Uh, it, very In the open ocean, those particles are, are plankton mostly. Could be dust falling from a volcano, though. Um, if it's dust coming from a volcano, it wouldn't have chlorophyll with it. But if it's plants, the chlorophyll sensor, I can kind of figure out what's going on. So that, that's a pretty limited set of sensors. Uh, Nitrogen to is the fertilizer. Oxygen, pH tell me about photosynthesis and respiration. Uh, chlorophyll tells me about the plants, and the optical backscatter tells me about um, about uh, you know another measurement of how many plants, the biomass of the ocean, and the the last thing that we measure is sunlight, right? So. Um, Got to have sunlight to grow, uh, uh, and the more the, it's really important to understand how deep into the ocean that light is penetrating. More plants, the light doesn't penetrate as far. If you want to understand, really want to understand the um, the uh, the trade off for a plant uh, has to have sunlight. It has to have nitrogen to grow. The nitrogen's all concentrated in the deep water where plants can't grow. There's no light, um, so it accumulates down deep. And um, plants can't use it because they can't know light, they can't grow. And so if you really want to understand how the ecosystem is working, you have to have a light sensor that tells you, you know, um, relative to where the nitrogen is, you know, where the plants can really live, what the zone of, of, um, of uh, where a plant can effectively photosynthesize and grow in the ocean really important uh, if you want to really understand how the ecosystem is working. You would like to have sensors, you know, uh, Bob is a marine biologist and really interested in, you know, um, species composition and what critters are there. I can't tell you that. Um, I would like to be able to tell you that, but we don't have sensors that I can put on, a, on these robots and will tell me, you know, there are salmon swimming by, there are sardines, uh, anchovies, um, hake, whatever. Uh, I don't, you know, we'd like, that's kind of the, you know, the next level. We'd like a few more chemical sensors, but I, people would really like to know who is out there. Yeah, there's some separate programs for the, those things where people can put uh, sonar signals uh, in, in big fish and so forth, and then yeah. kind of record when they swim by a certain fixed point on the ocean bottom. And yeah. is, is there pressure or, or, or thoughts that might, that might be useful to add on to some of these uh, profiling? Um, uh, well, that's kind of one of the things we, uh, so if we had time amongst all the other things that we're doing, uh, what I call a fish finder on a float, which, you know, is really not rocket science in some sense, but, you know, if you could put a fish finder on your bass boat and um, when you're in the lake, whatever, if you're out fishing in the ocean and see where the where the uh, feed is. I mean, it's a relatively, it's a simple measurement in the sense that it just, you know, you put a ping of sound out and if there's a 
fish or whatever out there, you get a ping back. You hear the, you get the echo back from the, from the ping. It doesn't tell you who the fish is. It just tells you about biomass, but that would be super important. Uh, you'd really like to be able, you know, um, to know again, is this an anchovy? Is it krill? Is it, you know, a big school of salmon? There are people working that route. There are people now, uh, uh, colleagues in France, putting a, a device called an underwater vision profiler, and it's basically a camera light source on a float, um, focused mostly on the small zooplankton, smallest, the biggest phytoplankton and and small zooplankton, and they get a picture, you know. Um, uh, lots of pictures and the real challenge, of course, is that, you know, turning lots of pictures into scientific data, short of having looking at the pictures yourself and going, oh, I know who that critter is. You have to have a computer be able to do it. And that's still kind of a challenge. Um, so we need an, yeah, an AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, but believe, this is like the technology I thought never would exist. Um, yeah. You know, I, I tell the story. My wife uh, did her degree in computer science at Oregon State, uh, go Beavers, um, in in um, uh, artificial intelligence back in the 70s when we were there graduate students. And we thought, wow, nobody's ever going to be able to. She did it on, on speech recognition, computerized speech recognition. And mm -hmm. it was like, man, that's never going to be a thing. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And here we are. Yeah. So I noticed in your list, the, the thing that I didn't see of what the sensors are detecting is iron that we started yeah. out talking about. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that. For, uh, you know, I mentioned iron is this micronutrient. Uh, I mean, the concentrations are really, really low. Uh, concentration of iron in the ocean is a part per billion of a part per billion. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, which is why the plankton are all fighting for it, right? There's just not very much of it out there. Uh, so part per trillion, um, part per quadrillion, you know, uh, a part per billion of a part per billion. I mean, and and so events that put a little bit in, you know, it's kind of, you know, biological warfare, whoever can get it. Um, but that is, becomes a real challenge uh, to measure it. So we yeah. mentioned John Martin at Moss Landing Marine Labs. He was, you know, one of the greatest ocean chemists ever. And his laboratory at Moss Landing figured out how to measure iron in seawater. But you, you go to sea, so you got a part per billion of a part per billion of iron in the water, and you're measured, you're on an iron ship lowering an iron sampler, at least in an iron frame, on an iron cable. <laughs> in, into the ocean and then you bring it back in a in a laboratory that's got all kinds of iron and you know rust and whatever around it was a huge huge challenge to do it in a laboratory and and now we want to make a sensor that's going to measure this it's it's um kind of the holy grail of you know the field so i have colleagues working on it our laboratory has worked on it a bit and I could, I can make a sensor that will do iron for a couple of days, but if that's all I, all I can do, I might as well just sit there on a ship and do it's a lot easier. Um, hmm. I really need to make a sensor that will run for six years, hmm. you know, to really, I mean. Aren't yeah. there speci uh, speciation uh, questions around that? And to in other totally, words, yeah. uh, 
the, the biologically available forms of iron yeah. are yeah. not, this isn't the whole picture. Well, so the, the total amount of iron is a part per million of a part per million, but, but that little tiny bit then is now, um, there are um, organic molecules in the ocean. They're called siderophores that bacteria produce that bind the, that iron. And so your sensor has to be able to, um, the actual amount of iron that is not bound up by these organic molecules is even smaller. And, and your sensor either, you know, is the free iron that... Um, some plankton get the free iron. Some plankton actually release these sidera. They they make their own siderophores that no other critters um, can um, access. And you know they're all fighting for the little bit of iron. And one of the secrets is that you make a molecule, you release it into the water, uh, it binds up the iron, and you're the only person that can access use that molecule of iron with the or the organic uh, organically bound molecule it's um and so now now i got to make a sensor that that i'm kind of fighting with the bacteria depending on which molecule it is i've got to access it's crazy complicated um yeah, yeah. we led a big international intercomparison of how to measure iron in the ocean so there was Kind of bio talk about biological warfare, everybody, we, many people in the community got different answers when we measured iron and we would argue about who was right. And so um, it's kind of a bit of international diplomacy. We got all the major research groups on a ship, uh, got on in Hawaii and came back to California, measuring iron as we went, stopping and periodically uh, sampling and what we really found out was that we we were all we were not wrong. We were all just measuring something different, um, mm -hmm. and you know this kind of access and it. What really allowed us to be intercomparable was to treat the samples the same way. We would all kind of do a little bit. We'd get a sample with some people would make it a little bit acidic. Some people would measure it without making it acidic. Adding acid. Um, causes these organic molecules to release the iron, but it depended on how acidic you made it and how long you waited and so on. And if we all did the same thing, we would all get the same answer. And so back to, you know, making a sensor, you know, that, you know, the sensor could give me, depending on how the sensor treated the sample, I could get five different answers. I'd probably get a million different answers. And, um, yeah, once you, and, and you've got that sensor and you've got to put it on a, a drug that's going up and down the ocean 2,000 yeah. meters and it's getting yeah. bashed by the waves yeah. when it's up and you're, you're trying to measure, you know, you say a part per trillion yeah. or whatever this, yeah. this stuff is. And it's like, well, that's got to be a hell of a technical challenge. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, colleagues working on it. I have a colleague down at Scripps that's actively pursuing this and, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's something that we keep our eye on here all the time. Uh, but the magic technology, um, we just haven't found yet. Hmm. Do any of the parameters that you can measure, can you indirectly uh, estimate the iron concentration from those? Or uh, The answer is yes. Um, so one of the things that we measure, so when I said we measure chlorophyll, we actually measure the fluorescence of the chlorophyll molecule. And uh -huh. so phytoplankton, depending on, so uh, phytoplankton absorb light in the chlorophyll molecule. They then pass that light on through all their molecular machinery on to essentially fixed carbon. 
And an awful lot of that molecular machinery requires iron. There's an iron involved. There are, we call oxidation reduction steps along the way in the process that um, you're uh, uh, taking carbon dioxide uh, reduced form. You've got to oxidize the, the make the reduced form of the, of, of the carbon for the plant to grow. And in that process, you have to have something else that gets oxidized, reduced, and that's very often iron. Um, and and so if you're a plant and you're iron starved, it's easy to, quote unquote, easy to absorb the light in the chlorophyll molecule. But if you don't have enough iron to do anything with the light energy, you will then fluoresce. You'll just release the light back um, to the water at a different wavelength. And so there are people that... Um, that study essentially the health of the plankton, their ability to process um, process light energy, and you it's very clear in laboratory experiments that an unhealthy and iron-starved plankton can't process the light very efficiently. So there are fluorometers that um, <laughs> will tell you, you know, if the plankton are happy or not. So, uh, we, we, uh, interest uh, a story. We did these iron fertilization experiments. Um, first one we did in the equatorial Pacific before we went to the Southern Ocean, but the equatorial Pacific is another one of these areas, um, not much land around, very far from continents. Uh, we, uh, water upwells brings the nutrients up in the equator, no iron. So there's lots of uh, nitrogen, no iron. We went out and fertilized these areas. And the very first experiment we did, we had a colleague with one of these active fluorometers on board that's measuring the health of the plankton. I'd never, it was some time ago, I'd never really seen one before. Didn't, I'm a chemist, I didn't really understand the um, the science of the photophysiology and the the fellow, we, we uh, the, the other thing you also learn in oceanographic ships is you have to pump the bilges periodically. And if you got to pump the bilges and you're doing an iron fertilization experiment, you don't want to pump them in your fertilized patch you don't want to mm. <laughs> they only hold so much sewage and so on then it's got to go overboard somewhere so anyway we'd gone off to pump the, we'd, we'd gone back and forth you know for a day and a half fertilized the patch captain says we've got to go pump the bilge we go away from the patch we're coming back and my colleague with this fancy fluorometer all of a sudden says hey Plankton are getting happy. We're coming into the patch. And, oh, sure. You know, you go look at, we're measuring iron as we go. We see nothing. Um, uh, we're measuring carbon dioxide as we go. With carbon dioxide, if the plants are growing, they'd be taking CO2 down. We see nothing. Uh, he's like, oh, we're coming in. We're coming into the patch. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, the people measuring CO2 then start to say, hey, carbon dioxide is coming down as well. And eventually, you know, this is all happening within half an hour, hour or something. People measuring iron. Oh, iron's starting to go up. But it was the plankton that... that you know, reported iron first, that what I would call the happiness of the plankton. Um, they they had gotten just trace amounts of iron. Um, we weren't measuring the iron because the plankton had assimilated it, right? There was, they'd already sucked all the iron up and the people measuring CO2 in the water then were starting to see the plants drawing, taking the carbon dioxide out of the water. What I would have thought was the best tracer, which was the iron, was the last one. And uh -huh. 
first one was the plant. So uh, are there ways to measure iron indirectly? For sure. And it really kind of relates to the physio measuring the physiology of plankton. Um, you know, are they healthy and able to process the sunlight? They are not. If they, if they are, they're going to use the light they absorb. They're not going to emit it back into the water as waste energy. They'll use that energy. You can play around with chlorophyll yeah. A measurements in fluorescence yeah. and yeah. kind of get a, a little idea of the health of the uh, phytoplankton. Interesting, yeah. And the, and then that, the, the chief thing that affects is uh, how fast and how large that the phytoplankton grow, right? And that has a huge effect on the, the rest of the food chain. Yeah. And, you know, at some point uh, in a natural, so you do a fertilization, it's kind of an, it is an artificial perturbation of the system. The plankton take off and grow like crazy. In a natural system, the iron just doesn't get dumped in. So everything responds much slower. And the zooplankton, then the little critters that will eat the plankton kind of keep up, you know, with the uh, growth. So you don't get these massive blooms. But if you go out in these areas of the ocean, uh, I, you know, and add iron, I, 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 so number one, the plankton grow very fast. Their population, they'll double in a day, right? So day one, there's twice as many. Day two, there are now four times as many. Day three, there are, you know, 16. I mean, it just, it's exponential because the zooplankters can't keep up. And in, I tell people it's kind of biblical in some sense. In a week, you change the world. I mean, uh, it's phenomenal. So you open ocean water is clear blue. I mean, the light penetrates a hundred meters down. If you were scuba diving, you know, you would see clearly at a hundred meters depth where in the coastal ocean, you know, 10 meters would be a good, good day where you can, you can see, go out and fertilize one of these areas. And, and, you know, within a couple of days, it's gone from blue to green to where you can't see, you know, three or four meters down. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, in that partly because the zooplankton that would limit that in a normal system just can't grow as fast as the plankton. It just gets right. out of control. But so um, there's a lag time between the phytoplankton yeah. growth and the zooplankton. And, yeah. then, and then and then that affects the kind of zooplankton that can grow on it, too. Right. The yeah. bigger the oh, items, yeah. the bigger the zooplankton. Yeah. We went. Uh, interesting story. When we did the second fertilization in the equatorial pacific we'd made this huge green patch you put out these little drifting buoys to mark so it's easy to find out where the patch is it's got a radio in it and, and we put buoys in outside the patch as well just so we have a spot that's the control right you want to you want to have a spot you visit that doesn't have iron a spot that does um in the open ocean you pull up to the buoy and there are mahi mahi all around. So the first protocol you pull up the buoy is the crew catch fish for dinner, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just the way it works, right? Give them an hour for fishing, right? If you want to, you know, get along with the crew, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good policy. Um, outside, outside the patch buoy always had mahi mahi. You pull up to the inside patch in this water that you really can't see a cup. There's no mahi mahi there at all. I mean, this is a visual predator. It does not like this kind uh -huh. of goopy kind of water. On the other hand, uh, this, this we're up in the bridge and somebody looks around and says, wow, i never seen that before. Look over there, there's a turtle. Um, and it, well, look over there, there's another turtle. 
There were turtles all over, big, you know, the big sea turtles. They were all over the place in this patch. I'd never seen, I've been to, I've spent a couple of years, open ocean, various cruises. I'd never seen a turtle before. And all of a sudden huh. in this green patch that we had, no mahi-mahi in there, but there are, I don't know where the turtles came from. They were all over the place, very happy. And they're big, um, big um, radiolarian aggregates, you know, uh, in big cells that had grown. And I guess, I don't know, the turtles were eating those, whatever. They were very happy. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's like really you know, like biblical, biblical, it totally changed the world. Um, huh. which so is the turtles are grazing on, you think, on those, on the aggregating phytoplankton. They're, they're herb herbivorous yeah. grazers. Yeah. 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 And you only get that when you get a phytoplankton bloom and those things glom together with that, that exudate. They somehow knew. I don't know how far they had come from, but they were, I mean, it was very weird. I mean, that is interesting. Yeah. How, how do we don't really know how turtles sense the world, do we? Yeah. I did want to talk a little bit about um, how these effort, uh, the U.S. is a, obviously a big player, but there are other nations that are doing these sorts of things. And mm -hmm. there's, uh, I guess, some international programs that you've been involved yeah. in very heavily. But, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the structure of these programs in terms of sure. who's so, participating and some of the challenges. I know they've got challenges with data uh, comparability and, and uh, mm -hmm. integration and stuff. So there's the, we operate under the auspices of a program called Argo, which um, not an acronym, but uh, Jason went around, you know, back in the... Um, the Argonauts, you know, in Greek history, they went on a ship called the Argo and uh, explored the ocean. Anyway, the Argo program is is designed, was designed actually to measure the, the temperature of the ocean, the heat content of the ocean. Does a great job. There are 4,000 of these floats that go up and down two kilometers about every 10 days, phone home, 4,000 all over, around the world ocean. It's an international collaboration. U.S. does about half the floats and the rest of the world does the other half. Um, it's phenomenally successful. We This program, we under some, understand so much about the structure of the ocean waters that we never understood. But it, it operates um, under the auspices of uh, the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission, which is a UN agency, the kind of like the Weather Service for the ocean. So the, the World Meteorological Organization, which facilitates us getting weather data from stations all around the world, Russia, China, Japan, Canada, Brazil, wherever. They're all members of the WMO, and there's an equivalent group the IOC, you don't hear about so much, but facilitates collecting data from the ocean. And Argo operate as, as under the IOC, collects data, makes it freely available. As I said, the data that comes from our floats, um, you know, anybody can get within 24 hours. It's, it's available without restriction. So uh, uh, IOC represents 150 nations. And of those 150 nations, about 35 are active participants in putting these robots in the ocean. And it was just a few years, well, 15 years. Argo's been going for about 20 years. And about 15 years ago, we started putting these chemical and biological sensors in the floats in, originally as an experiment. There are now 20 nations um, 
putting chemical sensors on floats. And again, the agreement is the US does have, we're targeting putting 1,000 of these robots in the ocean um, with chemical and biological sensors. There are about 300 in the ocean now, and we're trying to expand up building our way up to the 1,000. We've been funded by the National Science Foundation, thank you, National Science Foundation, to put 500, to, to acquire and put 500 of these um, robots all around the world ocean, uh, providing data that will really enable us to understand more about fisheries, understand more about the basic ecosystem of the ocean. Is it healthy? Is it, you know, not? So they're just huge areas of the ocean that no one ever goes to anymore. I mean, yeah, I was changing. Yeah, yeah, um, and that what people don't really realize is that forty percent of the world ocean is in somebody's EEZ, their exclusive economic zone, and you have to have permission to work. So uh, you think the Pacific is wide open, but there are, especially in the far western Pacific, uh, there are all these little island nations, uh, Kiribati, and. Uh, other ones that um yeah the micronesia covers micro a huge all micronesia that. yeah that that water is theirs um you know they they have jurisdiction over it and if you went on a ship to work in those waters you have to it takes you a year to get the international clearance and time <laughs> you have to have you know detailed cruise reports and and translated into multiple uh, languages and so on um but this international organization that basically serves as the weather service uh, makes the data available freely to everybody. So it's not the U.S. data. It's not my data. You have as much access to it as I do. Somebody in Kiribati in, um, in Tarawa has as much access to the data as long as they have Internet access, and they do. We work hard to make sure that they have access. So the consequence of that is that... I don't have to spend a year to get, if my one of my floats wants to go into the waters of Kiribati, um, I just have to, there's a UN agency notification that they go out and let all the relevant countries know it happens automatically more or less. And, it, and that is the advantage of working in, the, one of the advantages of working in this international framework, making the data available, um, you know, uh, China's part of it, Japan, um, Australia, uh, Korea, Canada, Mexico, Chile, Brazil, you know, it's a, it's a great, really a great thing, but as a scientist, it makes my life way easier and the rest of the world provides half of the hardware. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. You know, we've only got about five minutes left in the show. Uh, it's going to buy pretty quick. I, I wanted to ask you before we, uh, before we have to wind up a little bit about this vertical uh, distribution. We've, we've been talking mostly about plankton and, and phytoplankton. That's something that's pretty close to the surface, but you're measuring uh, 2,000 meters of water, and that's a pretty large column. Uh, it must be a lot different in the bottom of that column than the top. You know, there. so there are large areas of the ocean where the water doesn't circulate so actively, organic stuff falls in and, and oxygen goes essentially to zero, the oxygen minimum zones off of Mexico, Chile, um, huge areas and lots of concern that um, 
as ocean circulation changes, as, as the climate changes, these oxygen minimum zones may expand. So we, you've heard about uh, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, I probably. There is a, has been a, a intermittent dead zone off the Oregon coast uh, and in the interior of the ocean. So when the water doesn't connect directly to the atmosphere, oxygen is a gas, it will, you know, if the animals suck up all the oxygen, it'll get replaced in water right at the atmosphere, but down deep in the ocean, in the interior, large areas that um, just run out of oxygen uh, has big impact on fisheries. Uh, uh, the oxygen distribution is super important if you wanna manage a tuna fishery, for example, the tuna very active um, critters, they need a lot of oxygen to sustain their metabolism. And these oxygen minimum zones can be very close to the surface in areas off of Costa Rica and uh, I mean, and out, you know, a thousand miles. Um, so the sensors, you know, really, really important in the interior. It's not just where the plants are growing, but there is stuff happening in the interior part of the ocean. We're really interested in um, the plankton package, so the plankton take up carbon dioxide out of the water and then package that up into particles which sink into the deep sea. We call that the biological carbon pump, but that's a really important control on atmospheric CO2. So these little plankters in the ocean taking CO2 up all the time, shuttling it down deep into the, into the deep water actually are, which was the whole genesis of John Martin's um, uh, theory. If he could make, if he could add iron and make the plants grow faster, he'd take a bucket load of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, right? And and we're really interested in how this biological carbon pump is working. Is it changing as the ocean gets warmer? Does it speed up? Does it slow down? We don't have a global set of measurements to really tell us. We haven't had we, ships go out for a month and measure this kind of stuff, and they come back, and you don't know. You know, they go out for a month in one year and there's a whole decade that goes by before they measure again. Uh, you don't know how that changes. So we're really interested with these robots that go down two kilometers, how the carbon is getting shuttled into the deep ocean. Uh, Bob, a benthic biologist would be really interested in the flow of carbon, which is how the deep ecosystems run, right? The, the critters in the bottom of the ocean, they've got to eat something. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So that's what we got to worry about very briefly if we're, we're talking about putting more CO2 down deep in the form of organic carbon and it uses all the oxygen. And what is that going to do? So yeah. we've got to worry about unintended consequences. Yeah, you know, and so the whole point of this, no, we, we have not looked at this systematically. There are large areas of the ocean never been sampled. Um, so we're trying to build this global system of robots. Um, don't require a bunch of graduate students on a ship that only goes once every 10 years to make measurements. They're out there all the time, making their measurements, cloning home and allow us to really, you know, observe the health, the metabolic state of the ocean. Is it healthy or not? Great. Well, well, Tim, I think that, that gets us to about an hour here. And, that pretty uh, much wraps up the, the interview. Yeah. So thanks very much for speaking okay. with us. Yeah, no, glad it was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Our guest tonight was Dr. Ken Johnson of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. You can find more information about him and his research at our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great evening.
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.